I want to let you know right from the beginning that I really struggled this past week with how I wanted to approach this morning's text. Just full disclosure. As a matter of fact, Tuesday night, I worked late, finished up the Bible study. I felt really good about things. Even came inside and told Jess. She was excited, thinking, hey, he's, a, he's ahead. It's work week. And then Wednesday morning, God blew it all to bits. And I went back to scratch. And here was my fundamental struggle. On one hand, I sense a grave responsibility to remain true to our exposition of the book of Acts, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, at a decent click. But on the other hand, I couldn't escape the presence of an overarching topic from our passage this morning that demanded more than just a flyby explanation. With this in mind, I finally, and, and to be honest, reluctantly, because I didn't end up finishing the Bible study till late Thursday night, doubled my work week, but I made the decision that God wanted me to shred the draft, to start over, to restructure some things, and to separate the exposition from the topic we're going to address. So this is how we're going to approach this morning's Bible study. We're going to look at the text, we're going to go through the text, and then we're just going to kind of abruptly transition to a topic that I find to be kind of overarching but behind the scenes from the passage we're looking at. We're told, verse 19 of Acts chapter 9, that after spending some days with the disciples, Saul, verse 20, immediately preached the Christ and the synagogues, <clears throat> that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for the same purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now, because Saul was a renowned Pharisee, potentially a member of the Sanhedrin from Jerusalem, Arriving in Damascus would have come with a bit of furth there. The, the, the elders of the synagogues would have been very excited to have such a, a renowned individual, a scholar there in their midst. They would have invited him to be their guest, to speak. Can you imagine their reaction? When Saul, this Pharisee of the Pharisees, zealous for the law, a persecutor of the church, gets up and does what? that he preaches that the Christ was well, Jesus and he's the son of God. Talk about a rumbling through the audience. That's important to understand two important things about Saul. First, as a Pharisee, Saul would have been an expert concerning the Old Testament. Secondly, because he had personally encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, he possessed more than just intelligence, he possessed an experience, a, a cipher, so to speak, that made these Old Testament scriptures come alive. Saul was a preaching force to be reckoned with. He was not only equipped with an expansive understanding of God's word more than anyone else, but he was able to preach from the depths of personal experience. He had encountered Jesus. Knowledge and experience, it's a very powerful combination. Now, it should come as no surprise that the reaction of Saul's peers was one of disbelief. The disconnection between Saul, who was right there in front of them, and the reputation that preceded him was at a minimum confusing. And yet, 
Saul was not discouraged in the slightest. Could have been. Story rejected, an opposition arising, but we're told that instead of being discouraged, what happened? He increased all the more in strength. I like this word strength. It's, it's, it's in the Greek, in dynamo. Literally means to endure with strength. In some ways, you could say he grew hard-headed. Luke's choice of words here indicate that Saul, while he could have been discouraged, instead made a decision not to be deterred, but to grow in his resolve. The opposition, their opposition, simply produced a more determined man who possessed an an even deeper conviction. Now, while Saul knew that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the promised Savior, and was the Son of God, because he had, well, encountered him personally on the road to Damascus, it was from Scripture that Saul would then, we're told, prove, even to the skeptics, that Jesus was the Christ. But no, proving doesn't necessarily mean that someone responds in a positive way. Uh, proving that Jesus was the Christ didn't ensure that they converted. Instead, what took place, they became angry and, and we're told after many days were passed that the Jews, they plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. So the disciples took Saul by night, let him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, He tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him because they didn't believe he was a disciple, but Barnabas. Barnabas took Saul and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So Saul was with them at Jerusalem, coming in and going out, and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we're told he disputed with the Hellenists. <laughs> Saul's really good at making friends because they attempt to kill him as well. And when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him to Tarsus. Now, while the narrative provided here in the book of Acts by Luke seems to imply a quick succession of events in the life of Saul, Galatians chapter one gives us a, a more complete picture of what's happening in these verses. Saul would later write, that I did not confer immediately with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and then returned again to Damascus. And after three years, I went to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days, but I saw none other, no other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. Now, because Saul will become a central character that we'll travel along with from Acts 13 all the way to the end, Acts 11 all the way to the end. It's important to at least establish a timeline. Some of the movements of his early life gives us some context. Now, at some point during the time that Saul tarried with the disciples in Damascus, we don't know if this was before or after he had already started preaching in the synagogues, but at some juncture, he makes the decision to leave Damascus and he goes into Arabia for three years. Now, why would he go into Arabia? And what Arabia is he specifically referring to? Some have speculated that it would be the area around Mount Sinai. It seems to be a significant location when it comes to Scripture and the Bible and 
God's encountering of people. If you take into context Galatians 1 verses 11 and 12, some scholars believe that Jesus, while he was in Arabia, actually appeared again a second time to Saul and kind of expounded or explained or answered his questions and and kind of personally mentored Saul. Kind of a trippy thought, but there seems to be some evidence of it. Regardless, though we don't know the particulars and we don't know how long he was in Arabia before he came back, how it all worked, after some time, in the desert alone, Saul comes back to Damascus, according to Galatians. And it's there that he preaches the Christ, preaches Jesus. Once again, we don't know if this is the first or possibly the second time he's done so. But either way, the Jews want to kill him. And as a result, he escapes by being let down in a basket under the cover of darkness by the disciples. You know, Saul, that's, it's kind of an interesting thought that he escape, he escaped an assassination plot because Saul would not escape much <laughs> throughout the rest of his life. I mean, in this moment, he makes the decision, it's not time to die. <laughs> and so he's let down in a basket covertly and he runs away. But then later on, as we look at Paul, There would be instances where there would be a mob gathered and instead of escaping, what would he do? He would man up and want to go challenge them and people would have to like temper him back. You know, there's a difference between being bold and being stupid. (laughs) And sometimes you have to be led by the Holy Spirit. And it seems as though Saul was not the kind of guy that would uh, be fearful, that would resist a fight, that really had any, any care for his own life. We're told in, in some passages that he was taken out in stone to the point of death or death. He didn't care. His life was not his own. It was Christ. And yet something happens here where he's to be bold for Christ, but not boldly stupid. And so he decides, hey, it's not time to die. It's not time to die aimlessly or needlessly. Let me down in a basket, which kind of gives us a glimpse that he was not a very large man in stature. We don't have a physical description of Saul, but most historians believe he was kind of a a short, stocky little guy, enough to fit into a basket and be lowered down by a rope. But isn't it interesting that, that Saul, the persecutor, is now the persecuted? My have a lot of things changed in this man's life. Now from Damascus, both Acts and Galatians tell us that Saul, he goes back to Jerusalem, first time in three years, hoping to join the disciples. That's his intention. The text tells us he goes to join the disciples. The Greek word kaleo, join. It means to glue together, to fasten together firmly, to cement. I like that. Here's Saul. He goes to Jerusalem and he's wanting to plug in, to connect. He understood the importance of having a church community. And yet, we're told that the believers were still afraid of him, believing that he wasn't a disciple. Was this a, an elaborate plot to try to infiltrate the church? Had Saul gone, gone undercover, deep cover, pretending to be one of their own till he could figure out who was really in charge and pulling the strings, and then his true colors come out? You can understand their skepticism, but enter our dear friend Barnabas. 
We were first introduced to Barnabas in Acts chapter 4. If you want a more complete profile of this man, I'd encourage you to go back to the archive and listen to the study dealing with Barnabas. But this man, he does something radical, something daring, something bold. Saul's toxic. I mean, no one will touch Saul with a 10-foot pole for some legitimate reasons. The man had killed their friends. The man had, had wreaked havoc on their lives. You can't fault him for being a little skeptical. But Barnabas, Barnabas takes a step of faith and he reaches out to Saul. He hears his story. And then he ends up putting his name on the line. He vouches for Saul and he brings him before the apostles where Saul would ultimately recount his own story. We're told how he had encountered Jesus and spoken with Jesus, how he would preach there in Damascus no doubt also recounting events that took place in Arabia. Galatians tells us that the apostles mentioned here in Luke's account were actually just Peter and James. After recounting his experience, we're told that Saul was with them. So he was accepted. He became one of their own. And he was allowed to, to come in and to go out, and he was boldly preaching the name of Jesus. What happens? as was the case in Damascus, and kind of everywhere Saul would end up going, the Hellenists attempted to kill him. It's interesting that this is the same group of people that had killed Stephen, that Stephen had argued against, potentially of which Saul had been a member of himself, these members of the synagogue of the freedmen. Now Galatians indicates that Saul's time in Jerusalem, like he only needed 15 days to cause the town to go into an uproar and them to want to kill him. I mean, he moves quick. You got to give him credit. He gets to Jerusalem. He's met with a little skepticism. He's brought in. He goes out and he's preaching. And the town blows up. Like Jerusalem grows too hot for Saul to remain. Something has to give. Now Saul, Saul would remain valorous in the face of growing threats. He could care less. However, Fearing for his life and the effects that stoking the religious flames might bring upon the church, the apostles make a difficult decision, but the right decision. They send Saul to Caesarea, which was a coastal port. They put him on a boat and they send him home back to Tarsus. They're like, you got to leave, brother. Like, this ain't good for you. It's not good for us. You got to go home just hang out for a while, for a while, for the next eight to 12 years, Saul would remain in Tarsus. So three years in Arabia since his conversion, 15 days in Jerusalem, and now the next eight to 12 years in Tarsus doing what? I have not the slightest idea. No one knows. No one knows what Saul is doing in Tarsus abrupt transition. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been hurt by someone that you loved? I mean, someone that you really loved, someone that you cared about, some, someone that, that held the strings to your own heart. It, it might be a spouse who hurt you, a sibling, a brother or a sister, a parent who took advantage of you, Maybe even a child. The children say stupid things and, and, and they can hurt. 
Like, have you ever been hurt by someone that you really loved? Have you ever been hurt by a person that you trusted? Maybe this is not a person that you love, but it's someone that you trusted nonetheless. Might have been a friend or a coworker, a confidant or a neighbor, a teacher or a mentor. I mean, have you ever been hurt, maybe even indiscriminately, by a stranger? That you were just kind of in the wrong place at the wrong time and took the wrong bullet meant for someone else? You got caught in the middle and you got screwed in the process? Have you ever been hurt? I got another question. Have you ever caused someone that you really loved and who really loved you pain? Have you ever hurt someone that you really loved and you knew really loved you? You might not have a rhyme or a reason, but you did it nonetheless. Is it you that took advantage of the trust of someone else, that a friend really cared, a friend was there, a friend proved that they'd be with you through the thick and the thin, but you hurt him, you stabbed him in the back, your coworker. Have you been the guilty party and hurting someone you didn't even know indiscriminately, that your arrow was meant for someone else and a bystander got caught in between. Have you ever hurt or been hurt? Now, if you answered yes to any of these questions, <laughs> and we all have, right? Then you have grappled, struggled, processed, what it means to be forgiven or what it means to forgive. Now, I bring this topic of forgiveness up because though the text that we just read never once mentions the word forgiveness, there is no doubt in my mind, it was a reality I couldn't escape, that the fragrance of forgiveness it permeates every word of the section of scripture we looked at. Now, over time, I have found that many people find forgiveness to be a very convoluted topic. When it comes to scripture, it can be confusing and even harder a concept. I believe when you try to carry whatever definition you settle on into the real world of pain and hurt and emotion. So in dealing with forgiveness and in, in from our text, I wanna start with what we know, what we all can agree on. I've never met someone that wouldn't agree with this statement, that if you've been wrongly hurt by someone, that you need to seek their forgiveness, that, you've, that if you've hurt someone, you need to ask for their forgiveness. Like, I think we can all agree that if you're the guilty party, if you're the wrong, the wrongdoer, the transgressor, that you owe it to the person you hurt to apologize, to ask for forgiveness. Now, you know, it's very easy to detach yourself from the brutal reality of our text, but don't overlook the magnitude of these words. When Saul had come to Jerusalem. This is the first time he's come back to Jerusalem. It's been three years since he was wreaking havoc in Jerusalem and left for the only reason to go wreak havoc in Damascus. And then he disappears off the scene only to come back for the first time. If you had been Saul, 
and you are directly responsible for hurting so many people, ruining lives of so many people concentrated in one particular location, I think it's safe to say it'd be like the last place on earth you would want to show your face. Think about what it would have been like for Saul to have seen women whose husbands he had killed, to look into the eyes of Stephen's mother. I mean, this would have been radical to the point that most of us would have avoided the dynamic altogether, wouldn't we? You know, it's very easy to create rationalized excuses for why we shouldn't seek the forgiveness of someone we've hurt. Well, I mean, it was three years ago, right? You know, wouldn't, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be selfish? I mean, for me to cause someone I've, I've already hurt to, to have to conjure up all these painful feelings and hurt emotions just so I can have the release of apologizing? I mean, I should just let it, let it go. I mean, they've moved on already. What good would it be for me to create a scenario where that person has to relive all that pain? It would have made sense for Paul maybe to have rationalized an excuse of thinking, well, you know, what I did was wrong. But, I mean, I wasn't even a believer then. I mean, I wasn't even a Christian. I mean, I was ignorant. I thought I was doing the right thing. You know, now that I'm a Christian, I can, I can acknowledge that that, was, that that wasn't right, but you know, maybe I should let the past be the past. Hey, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. I just shouldn't go back there. You know, it's really easy for us to create reasons why we shouldn't go and apologize for the people that we hurt. And Saul could have used any of them. And yet, our text implies that he resisted these urges because he understood one key reality. Refusing to face the people he'd hurt and apologize for his actions would only limit what God could do in his life. You see, in order for Saul to gain healing, in order for Saul to move forward, in order for Saul to be used by God in any meaningful way, he had to go back to Jerusalem and face the people he'd hurt and say he was sorry. James chapter five, verse 16. The very apostle who met with Saul, he says that we're to confess your trespasses to one another. For what purpose? That you may be healed. The you is the person who's committed the trespass. Saul could have come up with all kinds of excuses. Imagine the story. If Saul never came back to Jerusalem, imagine how the book of Acts would be so incomplete and and, and probably non-existent. So much of Saul's life moving forward came from going back to Jerusalem and facing these people, and reconciling with these people, and apologizing to these people so that he could be healed and move forward. Saul had enough credibility issues moving forward because of what he had done, but no one would ever accuse him of not manning up and looking the people he had wronged in the eye and saying, I was so wrong, and I am so sorry. You know, many pastors claim that forgiveness, you've probably heard this, forgiveness is the mechanism by which a victim gains healing while repentance is the mechanism for the wrongdoer. Have you heard that before? Yeah. 
I don't agree. And here's why. Scripturally speaking, though repentance is an essential, non-negotiable first step, it is not the mechanism for healing. Instead, by design, repentance simply paves the way by which the healing qualities of forgiveness might occur within the heart of the wrongdoer. Hey, if you've committed a wrong against someone, if you've hurt someone, understand what forgiveness can do in your heart, what forgiveness can do in your life, the liberation that forgiveness can, how it can set you free. It only starts when you repent. Repentance is essential. But the healing doesn't come from repentance. Repentance just creates the parameters by which you can experience the healing of being forgiven. Understand, what Saul did here, like if you really try to go back into the scene, place yourself into his shoes, what he did was not easy. I can't imagine. Like, like I, I get kind of bent out of shape if I have to ask someone for forgiveness, like if I said something mean to them, right? Yet alone, if I stoned them to death. Like they have to look, the, like this is radical what Saul did. It wasn't easy. But you know, facing those we've hurt, it never is. It's never easy. It takes guts. To ask for forgiveness of someone you've hurt requires a tremendous amount of selflessness. It demands humility. But in the end, seeking the forgiveness of the people you've wronged is essential if you ever want to gain healing or see the full potential of what God can do through your life. So on one aspect, we understand, I think it's a given, that if you've hurt someone, you need to go ask for forgiveness, right? On the flip side to it, I think we can all agree that if you've been wronged, you've been hurt, that you need to forgive. You know, as misguided as it may be, it's still very true that many victims believe refusing forgiveness provides them a way to inflict some type of, of reciliatory harm towards the person who's harmed them. Like that it's my way to get back at them. They've hurt me. I'm not going to forgive them in order to hurt them back. Sadly though, the only person this choice holds captive is the person making it. I love this, I love this quote. It is perfectly normal to want to hurt back when you've been hurt. But hurting back rarely satisfies. We think it will, but it doesn't. If I slap you after you slap me, it does not lessen the sting that I feel on my own face, nor does it diminish my sadness over the fact that you have struck me. Retaliation gives at best only momentary respite from our own pain. The only way to experience healing, to experience peace, is to forgive. Until we can forgive, we remain locked in our pain and locked out of the possibility of experience healing and freedom, locked out of the possibility of being at peace. I must say that I've never met a person who found forgiveness, extending forgiveness, to be easy or for that matter, even natural. 
but it doesn't make it any less essential. In many ways, forgiveness, forgiveness, it was designed by God to be a decision of the will, a decision the will could make independent of how we feel, independent of our fickle emotions, that I can decide to do something even if I don't feel like I wanna do something. I like that. Understand, by enabling a person the ability to begin letting go of resentment, to begin letting go of thoughts of revenge towards their transgressor, making the choice to forgive, it's the only way that a victim can begin traveling the road of recovery and ultimate healing. If you've been hurt, please understand the only way that you can gain healing and move forward is to forgive. You know, on one end of the spectrum, the fact that Saul would go, that Saul would go and ask for forgiveness is, is, is just mind-blowing. But the end result was what? Like, it blows my mind that these believers, these people who would have their lives flipped upside down by Saul, who had been harmed in such a real and radical way that they forgave him the incredible pain that he had caused. And you know, I can't rationally explain how they could do that other than to say that it is indeed supernatural. Now always remember that forgiveness, forgiveness is a responsive act burst from the forgiveness I've already received from God. The only way they were able to forgive Saul is because they had already first been forgiven themselves. There was some context. C.S. Lewis wrote, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Here's the reality. Refusal to forgive is an act that denies God the opportunity to work deep within your soul. I'll repeat that. Refusal to forgive is an act that only denies God the opportunity to work deep within your soul. Is it any wonder that the effects when we hold on to our bitterness are so devastating? You see, suffering and hurt, they create a void deep within the heart that will either fill itself with forgiveness or the poison of acrimony and revenge. Spurning forgiveness does nothing but enable the virulent venom of bitterness to spread and to wreak havoc in every part of your body. It's like a malignant tumor that you refuse to do anything with. It won't stay in one spot. Bitterness grows and it spreads. It's like kudzu. It will take over everything if you don't deal with it radically, immediately. It's a poison. You have to cut it off. You have to deal with it. You have to move beyond or it will destroy everything. Even right now, I'm sure you can think of someone that refused to forgive, maybe refused to forgive you. And are their lives better for it? No, they end up being so much worse. You know, it's a truth 
that the world is ugly. And don't take this personally, but the people who live here are even uglier. As a part of the human experience, you're going to get hurt. People are bound to disappoint. And though your natural inclination will be to harbor your hurt feelings, friend, I exhort you, resist this urge and make a decision to embark on the difficult path of forgiveness because you'll be better for it. Now that said, if you've been hurt by someone and that person is now seeking a forgiveness that you're unwilling to bestow, please realize, while you think you're withholding from that person the freedom to move forward, in actuality, the only person you're limiting, the only person remaining in that prison is yourself. You're limiting what God can do in your life. Never forget Jesus' words from the cross, words that had you and myself in mind when they were uttered. Father, what? Forgive them. (laughs) They don't even know what they're doing, but forgive them. You know, one thing is obvious from our passage. What allowed forgiveness to yield its full effects and bring about restoration in this particular story centered around the simple reality that Saul was willing to own his own villainy. These saints in Jerusalem were were willing to bestow forgiveness. So we see like this glorious result because both parties come to the table, right? It's a good thing. And yet admittedly, this is what complicates things. This is what convolutes things. When one of the two parties refuses to participate, we're often left thinking of questions like this. One, okay, is it really possible to forgive a person who isn't seeking forgiveness? Like, can I do that? Like, okay, they could forgive Saul because Saul had come and asked for it. And Saul could experience healing because they had bestowed it. But what if, what if one of those two parties choose not to work things out? Like, is it possible to forgive someone who isn't seeking forgiveness? Or is it really possible to experience forgiveness if a person refuses to forgive you? Ironically, the Bible answers these two questions with a resounding yes and a tragic no. Let me explain. Because forgiveness is essential in allowing the person who's been wronged the opportunity to gain healing and experience freedom, the Bible does command that we forgive unconditionally. If you've been hurt, you're to forgive. Matthew 18, Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Like seven times? But Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven or a perfect number. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus would stress the importance of forgiveness. He says, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. No mention of the wrongdoer petitioning forgiveness, right? Just the command to forgive. Paul would exhort in Colossians three, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievance that you might have against another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So on one aspect, we're told to forgive unconditionally. However, the Bible also explains that forgiveness 
as a complete work of God is in many ways conditional upon the offending party petitioning the person they've wronged. We even see evidence of this in the divine realm. Let me share a few passages. Jesus would say in Luke 17, take heed to yourself. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Condition. Psalms 86, verse 5, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to those who call upon your name. Like, let me explain what this means. While it is true that the full work of forgiveness as a glorious work of redemption demands both the victim forgive and the wrongdoer seek to be forgiven, Scripture does present two other scenarios. Since the act of forgiveness by the victim towards the wrongdoer is required by God, well, it can take place independent of the involvement of the wrongdoer. Also, since the wrongdoer's only responsibility is to repent and then petition the victim for forgiveness, their involvement is also independent of the response of the victim. Let me simplify this concept with a simple sentence. I think a great biblical definition. While forgiveness is designed to be a path for two, it can be traveled alone. I think it's true of forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but I find that incredibly liberating. You see, while the divine result of forgiveness can only be achieved when the wrongdoer joins the victim in the journey. The double-edged nature of forgiveness doesn't necessitate both parties' involvement to still yield its liberating, healing effects on the individual. In the end, each party, the victim and the offender, is responsible for their own actions. If the party that caused you so much pain and heartache that ran you over, if they have no interest in for forgiveness, they have no interest in saying they're sorry, no interest in owning their own wrongs, well, guess what? You can still forgive. You don't have to be held hostage by that. You can forgive and you can be freed from bitterness. You can walk the journey of forgiveness alone. And if in response to the weight of conviction, you make the choice to face the person you've harmed, to like Saul own your feelings, your failings, to seek forgiveness as God requires, but that person isn't willing to forgive, take heart. You won't be held captive by that. You can believe and trust that God will honor your obedience and enable you the benefits of forgiveness. Let me close with a powerful example of forgiveness that I ran across in a radio lab titled Blame. A copy of the full story, uh, the audio is available on c316.tv. You can listen to it on your own. But around 7.30 p.m. on the evening of November 1st, 2000, a man named Ivan Simpson broke into an unoccupied home, an Atlanta home, 
owned by Hector Black's daughter, Patricia. His plan was simply to steal a few items so that he could pawn them off to fuel his drug habit. According to his own testimony, Ivan kicked out the back window, snagged a few things, and left to score some dope. Well, a few hours later, after his fix wore off, Ivan decided to run his luck again by returning to the home, which was still at the time unoccupied, in order to grab a couple more items that he could sell for drug money. But sadly, his luck ran out when Patricia returned home. Unable to escape, Ivan hid in the back closet, hoping Patricia wouldn't find him. He could slip out the window he'd originally kicked out, but he was discovered. And moving quickly, he overpowered her, tied her up. He concealed his face the whole time. Ivan then explained that he meant her no harm, but he was going to take her car so he could now load up everything he wanted to pawn at once. Ironically, the plan was that he didn't want the car. He even told her that he would leave the car in a local Chinese restaurant that she could go get later. Well, noticing that the police had not yet arrived, Ivan decides, well, instead of the Chinese parking lot, I'll, I'll do Patricia a favor and I'll just leave it at the end of the driveway. He's high on crack at the time. And according to his words, as he's leaving, a voice tells him to go back into the home. According to Ivan, he told Patricia that he had come back for sex. Taken back by her reply that he'd have to kill her first, Ivan proceeded to strangle and rape her before fleeing the scene. Killed her. Unexplainably, he would return again around 2 a.m. and defile her dead body one final time. Perverse, disgusting, horrifying. Ivan would later confess to the horrific crime and he would ultimately be sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Now, the DA wanted to pursue the death penalty, but unbeknownst to Ivan, the only reason he wasn't sentenced to capital punishment was because of Hector's involvement. Hector, Patricia's father, had found out that Ivan had been born in a mental institution, that his mother was crazed, that his mother had tried to kill him and his siblings by drowning them in a pool. Ivan and his brother escaped. His sister didn't. He would later be sexually abused by his older brother. He would live a life on the street of drugs. And Hector, a man who loves Jesus, was moved with compassion. L let me play you the audio of Hector recalling his experience. It, at the trial um, where he was sentenced. He refused to look at Ivan. Trisha's cousin got up first. She was just in tears and just said how much she hated him. I thought, oh Lord, here I'm going to go say something that's probably going to hurt her feelings. And when it came his turn. I had a written statement because I wasn't sure how steady my voice was going to be. But I was saying how much we love Patricia, how much she meant to us, and how wounded we were by what had happened. And I said, 
I don't know if I've forgiven you, Ivan Simpson, but I don't hate you. I hate with all my soul what you did to my daughter. And then he worked up the nerve to turn around. To face him. To say the last thing I had written, that I wish for all of us who have been so wounded by this crime, I wish that we might find God's peace. And I wish that also for you, Ivan Simpson. And he says, when he looked up, Tears were streaming down his cheeks. And, you know, that's the first time I, I looked into his eyes and it was like a soul in hell. It was just indescribable looking there. He would later recount his thoughts as to what happens next. He says, I thought to myself, he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. He's going to die in jail. There's no way he'd ever get out. So he could have said, to hell with you all. My life is over. I'm going to die in a damn jail. But he didn't. He went up to the microphone and twice, with tears streaming down his cheeks, said, I'm so sorry for the pain that I've caused. As I considered this, I thought, you know, he didn't need to do that. It was as though something had happened to him. Something had reached him. In that moment, I knew that I had to forgive. Because I don't know how many times I've said the Lord's Prayer. You know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive. Well, that means forgive. I mean, that really means forgive. For me, if you forgive somebody, it is really like you care about them. I guess that's one of the totally weird things that I should care about the man that murdered Trish. The interesting twist to the story is that over the next decade, Hector and Ivan would write one another. They would become pen pals and over the years develop a deep, caring friendship to the point that Hector and his wife even send Ivan Christmas gifts. No one else communicates with Ivan but Hector. Now, I, I share this story and close with this story to make a very simple point. If these believers in Jerusalem could forgive Saul for all of the terrible things that he had done, if Hector could find it within himself to forgive the man who brutally killed his daughter, If Jesus is willing to forgive a person like you, then what excuse do we really have not to forgive one another? Have you been wronged in a way greater than this? And not only that, but what excuse do we have not to ask for the forgiveness of another? Understand forgiveness. Yeah. It's designed to be a path for two. But you can make a choice to still travel it alone and in the process experience healing and restoration. You can watch a miracle happen deep within your heart as God allows you to let go of bitterness and hurt and resentment. It lets you move beyond your past so that you can fully experience your glorious tomorrow. So, Father, 
with that word, we allow these things to just settle.